All right. Thank you guys so much for joining us. You know, our announcers have been doing a great job of uh, reminding you about the Cross Promise Lunch, but want to just really encourage you guys. It's a free lunch. It's right after Sunday, and you get to go to people's homes, different people's homes, and just meet different people. So please consider uh, signing up. It's just a great way to fellowship and just meet people immediately if you've been having a hard time connecting with different people. So that'll be an ongoing thing up until, I think, uh, two more weeks. Okay, uh, open up your Bibles to Daniel 1, 1 through 21, and we're going to jump right into our new series on faith and work. But Daniel 1, 1 through 21. And again, we're going to be reading the entire passage. Just to warn you, it's going to be a little bit longer than usual. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you're joining us at home, it'll be on your screen at home. But we do encourage you to bring your Bibles. Okay, Daniel 1, 1 through 21. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tri tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them different names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for your presence that is always with us. Thank you for that time of worship, Lord. We pray and ask that you would, Father God, be lifted up in our hearts 
not only through song, but now through your word. Father God, be glorified in our hearts. Father, we want to treasure you. We want to value you more than anything. So Lord God, speak to us. Lord, be with everyone here. Be with everyone who's joining us online. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, praise the Lord. Well, last week we began a whole new series called Disciples at Work, and it is about how we should live out our faith in the workplace as disciples of Christ. And we're going to be looking at the life of Daniel, as you can tell, as the basis for this entire series. So every week we're going to be going through the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. Once you get into chapter seven, you're into a whole different ballgame. It's all visions and dreams and prophecies. But we will be going through the first half of Daniel. And of course, this series is not only for those who work a nine-to-five job. So for those of you guys who are younger, you're not working yet, please don't tune out. And even if you're not working outside the home, maybe you're just working at home remotely, this is still for you. Because if any of you are doing real work, again, if it's remote work, it could be work as a student. A lot of you guys are students. It could even be homeschooling children. But if any of you are doing real work, then we will be looking at things that pertain to you. We're going to be looking at the theology of work throughout this entire series. So what does the Bible have to say about work and how it integrates with our faith? This series is also for anyone who interacts with non-believers off and on or maybe regularly and their worldviews out there in our society. So as you're working, you're bound to interact with non-believers, right? Well, then this is also going to be for you. So this series is basically for anyone, whether you work a nine-to-five job or not. So you can get something out of this as we look at the life of Daniel. But why are we looking at this suddenly? Okay, why this topic all of a sudden? Well, last week I brought up some numbers from various research groups that can help us to answer this question. But here are these numbers I mentioned. 30 million, 90,000, and then 84. Okay, what are these numbers? Well, 30 million, that is the number of how many more Americans are religiously unaffiliated than just 10 years ago. So in other words, this is how many more secular or non-religious people are in our country since 2013. Okay, that's a big jump. But that's not even the whole story because there's more and more talk now about the return of pagan gods to our society. So that's a whole other message. But whether you see our society becoming more and more pagan or more and more secular, there is a jump, an increase, a marked increase in people who are no longer Christian, who don't even consider themselves religiously affiliated. So 30 million. The next number is 90,000. Okay, that is the average number of hours that you and I will spend at work over a lifetime. Okay, that is more than 10 years of continuous work stretched over a lifetime. That is a lot of work. Imagine that, for the next 10 years straight, without sleep, without going to the bathroom, without any breaks, you are working nonstop. Well, that's the amount of time you're going to be at work over your entire life. 90,000 hours. And then finally, 84. 84% is the number of Christians, 18 to 29 years old, who have no idea how the Bible relates to their professional life and work. That's the vast majority of young Christians have no clue. And when you get to older believers, I don't think the number changes very much. But the vast majority of Christians today have no clue how their faith relates to their work, which, by the way, they spend the majority of their life at. So here's the reason why we're looking at this. But Christians spend the majority of their waking hours at work where more and more people are secular and pagan, 
And the vast majority of these Christians have no idea how to integrate their faith with all that work they're going to be doing. And yet, as I said last week, as Protestant evangelical Christians, we have a rich heritage of integrating faith and work. And this goes all the way back to the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. But during that very pivotal time, a robust theology of work was formulated by the reformers, starting with Martin Luther and then John John Calvin and then others. But during this pivotal time, there was this very rich theology of work that was formulated. So we went over this last week. I'm not going to go over the whole thing again. But the basic teaching that emerged from the Reformation is that before anything else, this is what we know about God. The one true God that we worship is a working God. That is what you learn right from the beginning of Scripture in the opening pages of the Bible. That's the first thing you see. But in the beginning, God did what? He created the heavens and the earth. And so he continues to work to care for this creation that he created. So he not only worked tirelessly for four, or I'm sorry, not four, six days, almost said something blasphemous there, but for six days, and then he rested. But then after he finished working, he continues to work. Doing what? Caring for this creation. Theologians call this his providential care. And then, of course, he worked his greatest work to bring about our salvation. And he is still working today to spread that salvation throughout the earth. So God that we worship and follow is a working God. Jesus said in John 5, 17, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. It can't be clearer than that. If you are made in my image, if you are following me, then you will know that I work. And because I work, I will also call you to work. So this is what the reformers taught. Because the one true God works, he has called us to work as his imagers, his image bearers. And the call to work, by the way, given to Adam and Eve, came before the fall. So it is not a result of the condemnation or the wrath of God for sin. I know sometimes we feel that way. Work is a curse. It is not a part of the curse. It came before the fall. And not only has God called us to work, but he is working through our work. So that is another rich theology that came out of the Reformation. But as you're working at your job, whether it feels significant or not, whether you feel like this is something God is calling you to do or not, God is working through that. That is the truth we see in Scripture. How? How is God working? Well, he answers prayer through your work. I mentioned last week about the prayer, give us our daily bread. How is God going to provide for you to eat every day? Through your work. That's one way God answers. He gave you a job so that you could provide for yourself and your families. How else does he work through your work? To serve other people. Yes, you go there to make money. I understand that. But it's much more than that. You're there to serve. You are serving your community, the people around you, the people who go and use your services, whatever you're doing. You are serving. You are providing for the needs of others. And your work, hopefully, if it's honest work, real work, then you are also going to help flourish humanity. The world didn't just become what it is because God just snapped his fingers. He uses means, the means of your work. Luther famously said, God himself is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. So imagine this little milkmaid milking cows every day, and then Luther shows up, this great theologian, right? The leader of the Reformation going, God is working through you. God is literally milking the cows through your work. So God is working through our work. 
through the means of our work. He is answering prayers. He's building and running businesses that provide goods and services. He's building and running hospitals to care for the sick. He is building and running schools to educate the mind. God is doing all of this through your work. In fact, this isn't even in my notes, but I remember reading from the Reformation at that time that they called God the masked creator, the masked worker. You know what that means? That means as we're all busy doing our work, sometimes we think about God or not, God is behind us as a masked worker. He's the one at work, really. So God is at work. But unfortunately, human beings ruin all of these things with sin. All of this work that God is doing and all the work that we're involved in, we ruin it with sin. And so the reformers had this to say about work as well. There is this added work of always reforming these things. So not only are we called to work, but we must also reform continuously our work. Last week I mentioned the phrase semper reformanda. That's a phrase in Latin. But that was one of the calls during the Reformation. Semper reformanda. It means always reforming. Always reforming. This is exciting, especially if you're stuck in a work where you feel like, you know what, there's something not right here. This isn't really cut out to be what it should be, right? There, There needs to be changes. Well, God, from Scripture, backed by the Reformer, says you should do it then. You should change things. God will change things through you even. So in other words, things must continuously be reformed. Not to achieve some humanistic ideal. That's how some progressive churches use that phrase. They take that phrase and they use it for their own progressive ends. That's not what the reformers meant. But they meant things must continuously be reformed. Why? Not to achieve some humanistic ideal, but to bring it back to God's ideal in Scripture. So things need to constantly be reformed, and that's part of our work as well. Why? Because things get ruined by sin. You've got to bring it back to God's ideal. So semper reformanda, that's another kind of work we must continuously do. So do you see all this work that God has called us to do? God is working through your work. He's at work, in your work. And on top of that, because of sin, things need to constantly be reformed as well and refined to bring it in alignment with God. That's also another work God has called us to do. So God has a rich calling of work upon our lives. God is a working God. He has called you to work as well. And so because of this, this makes all the work we do in our lives, what? Spiritual. This was, again, coming straight out of the Reformation. All the work you do is spiritual work. And that was a direct hit against the Roman Catholic Church that said, no, no. What you do, milking cows, or what you do, making chairs, that's not spiritual. That's just carnal work. Only the priests and the monks and the theologians, they do spiritual work. And then Luther said, no. That is not at all what the Bible teaches. All work is spiritual work. Why? Because God is at work in your work. God is using your work to accomplish his ends. Now, I know some of you don't feel that way. Okay, so I understand. Some of you don't feel like your work is spiritual. You don't even feel like it's a calling from God. You're just there to make money, to survive. And as soon as I have an opportunity, I'm gone, right? I'm moving on to something else. And I get that. Five years from now, you might not be at the work that you're doing now. So I understand For most of you, you are just there to make money. But here's the truth, though. We need to understand this. But no matter how insignificant and temporary your work feels like, if you are doing honest, real work, whether it's 9 to 5 or not, God is working through it. You need to accept that. I really believe that is the teaching of Scripture. God is in your work, working through your work. 
to provide for other people's needs, to flourish humanity, to love others. Your work is literally a channel of love. God is using your work to love others. So God is in your work. And then, of course, he will also use your work to reach others with the gospel. So what does that mean? It's spiritual. It's a calling. I remember I, I, I remember I was doing discipleship with this one brother one time, and he worked with, uh, with I think it was uh, Amtrak, and he was there for many, many years. He said he was going to retire there, and he just could not accept this. <laughs> I almost got into an argument with him. But I'm like, look, brother, your work is free. He's like, it's not spiritual. All I do is answer complaints, and I answer the phone all day with people complaining about their services or things going wrong. I'm like, brother, that is a spiritual work. God is working. He just couldn't accept it. And so maybe some of you feel that way, and I want to encourage you. God is in your work. So this is a change in perspective we need to make. We need to always reform our minds, semper reformanda, right? Including our minds. You need to always reform your minds to bring it in line with Scripture. Okay, you need to bring it in line with what the Bible says. So this brings us now to the book of Daniel, which can help us align our perspective with God when it comes to faith and work. Daniel can help us to adjust our perspective. And the book of Daniel can help us to do this because as soon as the book starts, Daniel and his friends were what? They were confronted with a challenge regarding faith and work. So this was their situation right when the book opens. Daniel and his friends were Jewish exiles in Babylon. They were brought there because God had brought judgment upon the Jewish people for blasphemy, apostasy, going after other gods. So God had Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, come, destroy Jerusalem, and then he took all the nobility, all the upper class Israelites, and he took them all the way to Babylon. And so Daniel and his friends were a part of this group. They were part of the top elite among the Jewish people at that time. They weren't just the common folk. They were no more than 14 or 15 years old when this happened. So some scholars believe they were ripped away from their families. Maybe they went with their families. We don't know. But they were very young, 14 or 15 years old. So here they are, just a bunch of high school guys in a hostile foreign land, filled with hostile foreign gods, and they were brought there to do what? Work. They were brought there to work for the king. And pretty much the entire book unfolds with Daniel in the workplace. We don't see him with his family. We don't even know if he got married, had kids. We don't even know any of that. All we know is he was an employee in the workplace throughout the entire book. And while he was in this workplace, how would Daniel keep his faith and serve God? While at the same time serve the king where God put him. So that was the big question. How was he going to be faithful to God and serve God while he was serving the king? where he was at. And so that was the challenge he faced right when we meet him. And again, I said this last week, but a lot of you guys, that's exactly the challenge you're facing. And up until now, maybe you've not really thought about it. You don't have a good answer for that. How am I going to serve God and be faithful to him, but also be faithful to work? I said it like this last week. How am I going to keep my faith, but also keep my job? And by the way, sometimes keeping your faith will mean losing your job. If you can lose your life because of your faith, you can lose your job too. My wife said that. <laughs> She's like, Roy, don't forget to tell people. You can lose your life because of Christ. Well, you can you lose your job for sure. So that can happen. You can lose your job because of your faith. But for the most part, if God puts you there, he wants you to keep your job. Well, how do you do that? 
How do you keep your faith and also keep your job? Well, that was the challenge that Daniel and his friends faced. And the way they responded can teach us a lot. It can teach us the kind of perspective we need to have. And their perspective was not to assimilate. And we'll look at that today. It was not to assimilate. Nor was it to isolate. But rather, it was to live out the gospel. And because of that decision, you'll see God's salvation for them. And we're going to actually carry this all the way to next week as well. There was just too much to cover in one sermon. But it wasn't assimilation. It wasn't isolation. But it was to live out the gospel. And because of that, God brought salvation. So we see that. So I want to look at these different choices that we also have before us in the workplace. As a faithful believer, you also have these exact same choices. You can assimilate, you can isolate, or you can live out the gospel. So the first one is assimilation. This is the first choice you have right when you start work, right when you show up on Monday mornings. You can assimilate. The book of Daniel is mainly about God's sovereign, redemptive purposes for the world which are in conflict with the kingdoms of this world. So let me give a little bit of a background so we understand why this challenge was there. But this is what Daniel is all about. It was mainly about God's sovereign, redemptive purposes for the world, and these purposes were in conflict to the kingdoms of this world. You see that very clearly in Daniel chapter 2. We're not going to look at this dream today, but Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had a dream. Daniel interpreted it. But in this dream, there was a large statue. It represented the great kingdoms of the earth, including, I believe, the final kingdom that will be on the earth when Jesus returns, his second return. So this is a kingdom even future to us. But this statue represented all the great kingdoms of the earth, including the final kingdom. And in the dream, a large rock suddenly appears, a rock not cut by human hands, and it slams into the statue, destroys it. And the Bible tells us that that rock represents God's kingdom. So immediately in that dream, you see this clear conflict, right? Between God's kingdom and all the kingdoms of the earth. There's a direct conflict. And this conflict is playing out as God's great redemptive plan unfolds throughout the earth. This is what Daniel's book, Daniel's story is really about. It's truly sweeping. You know, when I think about all the different books in the Bible, few books have the same scope and breadth as the book of Daniel, when it comes to God's redemptive plan. I mean, I mean, the book of Daniel is truly sweeping. But here's the point I want us to get. That sweeping conflict between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of the world was playing out where? Right in Daniel's life and his friends in the workplace. That's where that conflict was playing out. So God's kingdom is in conflict to the kingdoms of this world as his redemptive plan is unfolding throughout the earth and that conflict will play out in our lives. Okay, that's what we see right from the beginning of this book. It was a conflict that was actually playing out in their workplace and that's oftentimes where you see the conflict. It is playing out directly in your workplace and that's why you have the tensions you do. Okay, that's why when you show up to work, it's like, ah, oh, gosh, why is it always kind of hard, right? Why do they say things that kind of bother me? Why do I have to hide this part of my life And let's be honest, many of you hide a big part of the deepest part of your life, your faith. You hide it. Why? Because you just recognize this conflict. So what am I saying? This conflict between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of the world are playing out in your life, in your workplace. 
You know, this past week I was reading a study on the book of Daniel and I came across this world, uh, I'm sorry, not world, this word, Babylonianization. Babylonianization. And I never saw that word before. But last week I mentioned gospelization. That's something we should do. Well, this is how the kingdoms of the world is in conflict with us. This is how the conflict plays out. It's trying to Babylonianize us, right? That's another way of saying it. It's trying to assimilate us. So Daniel and his friends faced Babylonianization. Okay, it was a form of assimilation. And so this is the conflict that you face when you go to work. There's constant pressure, and again, it's not just work, it could be school, but there's constant pressure for you to be on board with what they're doing, their values, their beliefs, their program, get on board. And if things are gonna go well with you here, then you gotta get on board, and so you immediately recognize that. Some of it's fine, it's neutral, a lot of it is directly opposed to your faith. And so there is this Babylonianization, and some of it comes hard, some of it comes soft but it is relentless. And if you don't feel that way, then I'm sorry to say this, it could be that you might not be a believer. That's why you don't feel it. Because there is no contradiction, there is no conflict in you. You just show up to church, but there is no true faith in you, and so you go to work and ah, everything's fine. School's great too, I don't even know what you're talking about, Roy. What conflict? I don't see no conflict. So that's a whole different story. I encourage you to reassess where you are with Christ. But if you are a true believer, then immediately you're going to know this conflict. You feel it every single day. There's this pressure to assimilate. So Daniel and his friends knew this. They felt this. It was a challenge. They wanted to assimilate them. So King Nebuchadnezzar put the Jewish boys into this three-year assimilation process. It was a program. It had many different steps. So let me just mention what some of these steps are. The first step was to re-educate them. And that's happening to us as well. But you are constantly being re-educated or they're trying to re-educate you at your workplace, at your school, wherever you are out there. You see this in verses three and four. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, used without blemish, good-looking, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. Why? to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And later in the second part of verse 5, is very clear. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So it's very clear. What was one part of that assimilation, okay, that conflict, that challenge? They were being re-educated. So rather than learning the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, the first five books of Moses, this is what every Jew was taught Rather than that, these Jewish teenagers had to learn the history, the language, the science, the religions of Babylon. And that included, by the way, magic and astrology, which would have been repulsive to the Jews. Repulsive. God forbid it. And yet this is what they were being taught. So Nebuchadnezzar wanted to reset their beliefs and their values, their worldviews. They were being re-educated. So that's one thing you see. Here's another step. It was to make them dependent on the king for their basic needs and desires. They wanted these Jewish teenagers to become utterly dependent upon Nebuchadnezzar. The first part of verse 5, it says, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Now that might appear very gracious of the king, but it was actually to get them very dependent upon him. 
This is the only food you're going to get. You're going to eat of my food. You're going to drink my drink. We're going to look at this more in the next point, but this was a strategy for the young Israelites to become utterly dependent upon the king, to see the king as their provider and sustainer. So whatever they needed or desired in terms of basic needs, the king was making it clear, you're only going to get it from one place, me. You're going to get all your basic needs from me. And that, by the way, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but that, by the way, isn't that what your work tells you? How are you going to survive in this world? How are you going to pay your bills? How are you going to pay your mortgage? How are you going to provide for your children if you have kids? You better keep this job. You better get in line. Everything in this world that you need, we're going to give it to you, right? It's the exact same message. So that was another thing. Third, they were given new identities. So that was the third step in their assimilation. They were given new identities, verses 6 and 7. Among these were Daniel, these Jewish exiles, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now these name changes, they were very telling on what was happening. You get a very clear picture here. But their original Hebrew names were based, all, all of them were based on the one true God, Yahweh. All of their names. Daniel means God is my judge. It's a good name. I have a brother named Daniel. We have several Daniels here. <laughs> but God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. That's a beautiful name too. Mishael is a form of Michael. Mishael means who is like God. Who is like God. And then finally, Azariah means Yahweh will help. Yahweh will be my helper. So these were wonderful names. But when they got to Babylon, they were immediately given new names based on Babylonian gods. Now, this wasn't something malicious. It was just standard practice. This was done to everybody who was exiled. But Daniel was given the name Belshazzar. And Belshazzar means something very different. It means Bel protect his life. Bel protect his life. And Bel was a Babylonian god. Hananiah became Shadrach, which probably meant, we're not exactly sure, but it probably meant command of Aku. And Aku was a moon god. So these are all these pagan gods, right? Mishael became Meshach, which meant who is like Aku, the same moon god. Remember, his name used to be who is like Yahweh. Now it's who is like Aku. That's an unfortunate downgrade. And then Azariah became Abednego, Abednego or Abednego, which meant servant of Nebo. Nebo was another Babylonian god. So do you see that? It's so clear. They took their names all based on the one true God, Yahweh, and now their names are all based on these pagan deities. You know, I had a similar experience, not that I was exiled anywhere, <laughs> but my family, they immigrated from South Korea to here, to the U.S., and I was born here. But when my grandpa and my dad immigrated here, they were given a new name. So our name, our last name is Shin, and it's pronounced that way even in Korean, it's Shin. But when they got to the U.S., my grandpa and dad were given the name Sin, S-I-N. I don't know why. The U.S. immigration <laughs> gave them the name Sin. So I literally have on my birth certificate, Roy Sin. So I would have been Pastor Sin. <laughs> okay, That's, that, that would have been me. I thought Pastor Dollar sounded bad. I, I think Pastor Sin is worse, right? Pastor Sin. But thankfully, my family eventually changed, changed that, right? We went back to our original Shin. So now we're Shin. But that was an unfortunate new identity given to us, and that's exactly what's going on here with Daniel and his friends. They were given unfortunate new identities. 
And so these names represented Babylonian identities that they were wanting them to accept, that they were trying to press upon them. This was all part of that assimilation process. And this assimilation is still happening today. And it's relentless. So the world is constantly trying to re-educate us through repeated exposure to their ideas, their beliefs, their practices. And so we know this. And only the ones who are aware are going to be able to not become assimilated. But you are constantly being pressured to be re-educated through the media, the entertainment industry, the education system, the financial sector, the government, the major institutions all around. And of course, even the workplace. It's happening right at work. So school is always in session. This is what Daniel and his friends realized when they got to Babylon. School is always in session. You are always being taught something that is going to contradict the word of God. You know, my wife, Jill, told me that when she used to work at Pomona College more than 10 years ago, every year she was required to attend sensitivity training. I hope I get the story right. Jill, you can correct me if I'm wrong later. (laughs) But she used to get the sensitivity training on different sexual orientations, different lifestyles. She told me already back then, more than 10 years ago, they were already talking about gender way back then. They were already talking about this stuff. And she had to go to this. It was a mandatory training. Every year she had to go. Of course, my wife just kind of tuned it out, but but she was there. And so this is one common way people are re-educated into new values and beliefs. And it's happening oftentimes right in the workplace. But it's not only re-education, but we are constantly being pressured to be dependent on the world for all of our needs and desires. So everything about the culture around us is set up to make us forget about the one true God and his provision, and rather to see the world as a source of all the goods and all the things that we need. So if there's going to be a utopia here on earth, it's not going to be God and his kingdom coming. It's going to be us bringing our own kingdom. This is the world's message. We're going to bring human flourishing. We're going to bring prosperity. It's the world. We're going to do it. And this is the promise of both socialism and capitalism, both people on the left and the right. So it spans the entire political spectrum. It doesn't matter where you lie. This is the same message. I mean, they just have different methods to get there. But we will bring the kingdom that we choose here on earth. We will bring human flourishing the way we see it. And so what is that message? Everything you need in life, all the flourishing, all the desires you have, we're going to meet them. We're going to meet them ourselves. And if you embrace the world and its values, then you'll have the career you want. If you accept this message, then you'll have the life you want, the house you want, the partner you want, the friends you want. You'll have the financial security. Everything you desire, you will get it from me. That is the message. You will hear it nonstop. And maybe not until today did you even realize that's the message. Because it's so ubiquitous. It's so everywhere. So it's just like the water we swim in every single day. Even as a pastor, I sometimes forget. Oh, yeah. All my needs are not met by this world. That is the message. And so what's happening, brothers and sisters, as this message is pounded into our heads day in and day out, month in and month out, year after year, especially at work, what happens is our identity slowly begins to shift. So our identity goes from being rooted in Christ alone to now becoming rooted in the world's values, beliefs, and blessings. So yes, I understand, when you show up to work, even when you came to this country, if you immigrated, you might not have been given a new name. Okay, my family was, sin, right? But even if you're not given a new name, over time, they are trying to press a new identity upon you. 
they are trying to give you a new identity. It is an identity that over time becomes inseparable, inseparable from your career, your job skills, the money you make, your salary, your acceptance by supervisors, coworkers. What I mean is, is that you can't even see yourself apart from these things. You don't even know who you are if you don't have these things. And so the message is always the same. Everything you need, everything you desire, we will give you. It will come from here. And for most of us, we accept it. We believe it. We believe it. Okay, this is why our jobs are everything. And again, you can replace job with school. This is why our GPA, our school is everything. It's everything. Why? Because this is where I'm going to get everything I need, everything I desire. And here's what's so incredible. But when you look at Daniel, this was not him. Okay, this was not his friends either. They refused to become assimilated. And the reason why is because they recognized what was happening. For them, it was obvious. Okay, they were trying to be assimilated. Okay, they were given literal new names. And so I think for many of us, for all of us actually, none of us show up to work or show up to school one day going, hey, I'm here, assimilate me, right? Let's go for it. Let's do it. But rather, the reason why so many Christians get assimilated is because they don't, they're not aware they're being assimilated. And so not being aware of being assimilated is what gets us assimilated. And so again, when you turn to Daniel and his friends, they were aware. They knew that they were being assimilated outwardly, and so they refused to be inwardly. And many Christians stop there, and they see their duty as done. Okay, I'm not going to be assimilated. But here's what's incredible. Daniel and his friends, they were not assimilated, but neither were they isolated. Neither were they isolated. And this brings us to the second choice before us, isolation. It says in Daniel 1.8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So knowing that Daniel was being assimilated, Daniel, it says here, resolved himself. In other words, he drew a line. He resolved not to cross that line. So what was this line? Well, he was given all this food from the king's table, this rich food, and he, once looking at what was offered, said no. Okay, I refuse to be defiled with the king's food. So he made this resolution, and there are a few reasons why he might have done this. We're not told why, but this is probably why. One reason is the king's food likely had things that the Jews considered unclean, like pork, right? Maybe there was a lot of bacon on the table. Horse flesh. Okay, this is likely what the Babylonians ate. Shellfish. Okay, these would have been all considered unclean by the Jew who followed the Old Testament dietary laws. So when Daniel saw all that unclean food, he's like, I, I can't eat this. These are unclean things. But here's another reason why Daniel might have refused it. Because it was the king's food, oftentimes in Babylon, this was food that was offered first to the pagan gods in the temple. And then that food was brought before the king. And so Daniel probably knew that as well. This is food that was offered to these pagan idols. And so that also would have been a reason. He's like, I can't eat this. So whatever it was, there was good reason why Daniel, who lived under the old covenant, drew that line, saying, no, I cannot eat this food. And so he drew that line, even though there was every reason to just eat the king's food. Get with the program, just eat it. But he refused. But there was so much reason why he would have. 
For example, eating the king's food would have given him every opportunity to advance at his work. He could have had job advancement. And to not eat the king's food, he would have not advanced. In fact, he would have upset the king. He could have lost his job, lost his head even. There would have been a lot of peer pressure, peer pressure to eat the king's food. It's like, come on, Daniel, we're all eating it. We're all going every day to eat the king's food. Like, what, what's, what's wrong? Get with the program. Another reason is nobody back home would have known, right? He's in exile, thousands of miles away from home. Who would know? He'd eat the king's food. The king's food also would have been very tempting to eat. Right? Look at all this rich food. I mean, why not eat a little? I mean, what, I mean it's good food. And then finally, didn't God abandon us? Isn't that what's going on here? I mean, we were living peacefully in our homeland, and then suddenly... Nebuchadnezzar shows up, destroys our city, takes us away. Now we're in exile. So didn't even God abandon us? So who cares if we disobey some dietary laws in his word? So that could have been another reason to just eat the king's food. So so do you see this? There would have been every reason given to eat the king's food. All this pressure to assimilate. So we're kind of talking about assimilation again. And yet, Daniel drew that line. He wouldn't go along with the program. You know, I mentioned last week someone I knew who worked overseas at a company, but he felt this pressure. I remember talking with him. But he literally said he felt this pressure every day when he went to work because the boss of that company had this culture that he formed where after work, maybe not every day, but at least once a week, if not a few times a week, they would all go to the bar and they would eat dinner and they would spend hours there and they would get smashed. They wouldn't stop and go home until they are all drunk, completely wasted. And that was their way of bonding, networking, advancing their careers. I and mean, that's, that's just what they did at that company. And so for him, being thousands of miles from home, I mean, he was all alone in a foreign country. I mean, he had every reason, like, what, what's the deal? I could just do this. So it would have been very easy for him to just get with the program, just eat the king's food. Well, Daniel, and I believe my, uh, the person I knew, I, I believe he didn't do that. But Daniel as well resolved not to do this. So this is very admirable. It's an example we need to follow. But hear this. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Oftentimes, we begin with these right motives, right? Okay, we, we show up at work. We're in these like, settings where there's a lot of pressure. There's like, this conflict going on. How do I keep my faith but also keep my job? And with all that pressure to assimilate, I believe many of you here, okay, you're true believers, but many of you, you will resolve, no. I draw the line like that guy I knew overseas. No, I'm not going to go and get smashed every single week and get drunk and then get dragged home. No, I'm not going to do that. So they make this resolution. It's very important. It's very admirable. So many of us, we begin with the right motives, but here's what happens. As the pressure continues to build, as it keeps getting harder and harder, you're going to say you're going to cave. Some do, but that's not what I'm going to say. That's what you thought I was going to say. But many Christians, what they end up doing is they harden their resolve. They harden it even more. They get even more antagonistic, more hardened. No, no. In fact, you begin to look for other work. You're like, I don't even want to be here anymore. But you are getting hardened and hardened. And if that is all you know how to do, then eventually it'll lead to something else. It could completely cut you off from everyone and everything in Babylon, in your community out there in your workplace where God has placed you, you become completely cut off. And so what am I talking about? This is a form of isolation. 
And so these are the people, again, it started out with the right motive. You had all this resolve. You clearly saw this assimilation, this pressure to assimilate, and you said no. You said no again. You said no again. You draw that line. And this is very important. You should do that. But if that is all you know how to do and there's nothing else, you don't know of anything else, the gospel, how to be a witness, nothing else, right? But you just make these resolves and harden and harden and harden. Eventually, you are now isolated. And this is where some Christians find themselves. Again, it begins with the right motive, but then soon they are not a part of the community that God has placed them in for his purposes. So they become walled off from others at work. They don't really associate with anyone at work. They don't share anything with these people around them every day. Again, 90,000 hours you're spending at work. And your life is not integrated there. And they will find the one or two Christians at work and they're going to latch onto them. And that is pretty much all they associate with the entire time they are there. And so this is a form of withdrawal. And again, even though this began with the right motive to not be compromised, that's not the full picture, okay? I think we understand that. That is not the full picture. So the call is not to be assimilated, of course. We should not be compromised, but it's neither to be isolated. See, if you don't understand the true calling that God has given you in your workplace, then you're going to fall into one or the other. But that, neither is the full picture. And it makes verses like Matthew 5.14 meaningless. 14 through 16. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So if you're assimilated, you have no way of making sense of that. But if you're isolated, it's the same. You have no way of making sense of this either. How are you the light of the world? How are you a city set on a hill where people see the light of God, they see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven? So neither is the full picture. You know, St. Augustine, he's written so much to help the church understand these things. And Augustine came way before the Reformation. I mean, he, he lived in the second and third century. But Augustine wrote a book called The City of God. It's a great book. Um, and he really lays out this tension of being in the world and yet not of the world, but he really explains it. But in the book City of God, which is really a collection of books written in response to the downfall of Rome. So he was living during the time when Rome fell, and as he was thinking about this, he wrote a bunch of things, right? A, a collection of essays, and it got all put into a book called The City of God. And basically in this book, he lays out a theology of the history of mankind. And just stick with me for a moment. This will make sense. But Augustine says throughout the Bible, the history of mankind is presented as really a history of two cities, the city of man and the city of God. He said the history of human beings on this planet is really the history of two cities, the city of God and the city of man. They're often called Babylon and Jerusalem, symbolically. The city of God is Jerusalem. The city of man is called Babylon. And these cities are directly opposed to one another. Remember the two kingdoms in the book of Daniel? They're opposed to each other. Augustine says the same thing. The city of God and the city of man are diametrically opposed to one another. In what ways? Well, the city of man, which is embodied, by the way, at your workplace, at your school, the city of man is based on pride, the love of self. You're there to do what? Make something of yourself. I will do something, right? I'm going to get the life I want. I'm going to get the needs and desires met. I will do it. It's the love of self. 
In contrast, the city of God is based on the grace and the love of God. No, God has done it. God will do it. I'm unable. He will do it. The city of man seeks glory from men. Do you see what I do? Boss, are you going to give me a raise? I mean, don't you see all the things I've written in my own report, my assessment? I mean, do you see my grades? Are you going to let me into this program? It's all about what I do, this glory of men, but the city of God seeks the glory from God. The city of man is governed with power. It is the powerful. It is the skilled. They are the ones who rise up. The city of God is governed by love through service. In God's city, the lower you go, the higher you go. In the city of man, the higher you go, the higher you go. And so these are diametrically opposed to one another. And I like what Tim Keller said, but he actually wrote and talked about these two different cities at different points. And he said, because these different cities have different natures, different qualities, they affect people differently. They have very different effects upon people. But the city of man is characterized by exhaustion. Why? Because it's centered on the love of self and the glory of man. You're seeking your own glory. So you're constantly striving. You're constantly having to get with it to rise above others. So it's characterized by exhaustion. You need to do more to get ahead. And also oppression. Why oppression? Because ultimately, even though you want to care for others and love others, but at the end of the day, I got to do what's best for me. Right? Isn't that how people feel at work? Yes, I know. My coworkers, I actually like them. I care for them. But at the end of the day, when all is said and done, I got to do me. I got I to get my own, right? And if that means pushing others down to get it, then I, I just got to do it. I got to do it. I got to get that one spot, right? I got to get the promotion. I got to get that raise, not them. And so it is characterized by exhaustion and oppression. But in contrast, the city of God is based on God's grace. So there's rest, right? That striving comes to an end. Okay, all the things that you deeply need and desire, ultimately you know they come from God. So the city of God is characterized not by exhaustion, but joy and rest. Not by oppression, right? Stepping on others to get ahead, but by justice, so if you see others who are struggling, if they're being mistreated at work, you can actually put yourself in front of them and actually help them. Even if it costs you, even if it means a sacrifice, that, that's okay, right? Because you're a citizen of the city of God. So anyway, Augustine, he mentioned these two different cities, and as different as they are, okay, this is what he said, and this is where it connects to our sermon today. They exist together throughout the world. And until Christ comes back, as Augustine said, that they are deeply intertwined with one another. Does that make sense? So the city of God and the city of man can't be more different. They impact people differently, radically differently, and yet they are deeply intertwined with one another. And so now when you understand that and you come back to Matthew 5, 14 through 16 and passages like that, now you go, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense why God would even command us to do something like this. See, when you go back to Matthew 5, it doesn't say you are the light of heaven. That's what you would think Jesus would have said. Okay, now you are born of heaven, right? You're from above. You've been born of the spirit above, so now you're the light of heaven. No, that's not what Jesus said. He said you are the light of the world. Why is he saying that? Because you are not only a citizen of the city of God, you are the citizen of the city of man. You're the citizen of both. This is what Augustine said. You have dual citizenship. So we are the light of the world. Why? Because we live in this world, 
but we are a citizen of God's city, so we have his light. But we also live in this city, the city of man, so we shine the light here. See, we have dual citizenship. You know, my dad, he was actually thinking about getting dual citizenship with the U.S. and Korea. I don't know if they still allow that, but he was actually seriously considering it. And I remember he told me, oh, man, Roy, you should consider it too because the great benefits of dual citizenship is the ease of going back and forth, right? You don't have to do any paperwork. I mean, you could just go and live in Korea for five years and then come back to the U.S., live here for five years, go back. There's ease of going back and forth. And not only that, but there's also investment in both areas. And my dad, he really knew that when he was cheering for American and Korean teams at the Olympics. I mean, he didn't know who to cheer for, right? Ultimately, he cheered for Korea, right? I mean, that's where he grew up. But, but I understand. I mean, you're kind of torn. Why? Because you're invested in both. And so if you understand this, brothers and sisters, that you have dual citizenship. Yes, you're a part of the city of God, but you're also in the city of man, and you belong to both. Now, do you have a greater allegiance to one? Yes, the city of God, you have a greater allegiance. If you need to cheer for one city, you're going to cheer for that one but you have citizenship in both. So you know what that means? Not only do you go back and forth easily, and you do, but you also have investment in both. You're invested in both. So now let me bring it all the way back, and we're going to come to a close soon because we're not going to look at the third point until next week. But now do you see why it's so wrong to become isolated? I know we understand we shouldn't be assimilated, but isolation is equally wrong. Why? Because now you are not understanding that you are a citizen of this city, of this world as well. That God has placed you here for a reason. Yes, you're an ambassador from heaven here, but you also belong here. And so you should not be isolated, but rather you should share your life with others here. You should be a light to those around here. You should use the opportunities you have here to serve others, like Jesus said, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Does that make sense? And so you cannot become isolated just as much as you cannot be assimilated. Okay, both, I would say, is equally failing the will of God. You're falling short. And so now when you look at the life of Daniel, you see him clearly navigating both. I mean, it's just amazing. He was just 15 years old, and yet he had this great wisdom. So you see him neither assimilating, he drew that line, and yet he wouldn't become isolated. He just wouldn't. So he didn't turn his back upon everyone there in the palace. He didn't start a coup in Nebuchadnezzar's courtroom, right? He didn't begin to protest and begin to like come directly against everyone. He didn't bring accusations against the eunuch and his servant. He didn't try to manipulate them to use them, right? To step on them, to get to whatever he needed, even if it was God's will. He didn't do any of that. He wouldn't assimilate, but neither would he isolate. What did Daniel do? He worked with them. He looked out for their well-being. And we're going to look at this next week. But the eunuch said, oh, no, you you can't ask to be kept from the food, the king's food, because if you start looking bad, then I'm going to lose my head. And Daniel said, look, 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 we're going to figure this out together. And so Daniel worked with them. And so he was looking out for their well-being. He was serving them. I mean, it just blows my mind. This 15-year-old, along with his friends, they had that kind of wisdom, that kind of maturity. They were navigating between the city of God and the city of man. And so this brings us to the third path, which is gospelization, where they begin to truly live out the gospel. And we'll look at that next time. Amen? But this was Daniel. And this isn't just Daniel, but this is every faithful disciple at work. 
And so this is our call, brothers and sisters. As you go to work tomorrow morning, as you go to work, okay, you should be aware of this now. Okay, in what ways are they trying to assimilate me? And in what ways am I trying to respond by saying yes or saying no, but when I say no, maybe I'm becoming isolated. And I'm no longer being this dual citizen, right? I'm no longer being the light of the world, the salt of the earth. So let's just come before the Lord. Today is Communion Sunday, so we're going to be taking communion together. But let's bow our heads. But you have dual citizenship. Yes, we belong to God. Yes, our citizenship is in heaven. But you are also a member of this world. You live in this world, you belong to different schools, different companies, hospitals, workplaces, different communities. And we are not imposters, right? Right? We're not faking it when we go to these things, our jobs. Right? We're not imposter employees. No, we're real employees there. We genuinely work there. When you go to school, I mean, are you, a, are you a fake student there? No, you're a genuine student there. And I would say God put you there. And so now, if you belong to both, both realms, the city of God, but also the city here, then I leave you with that question again. How are you going to live? How are you going to live out your faith? So let's just come before the Lord. We're going to take communion very soon. But let's, let's ask the Lord. Let's ask him for wisdom. Let's ask him for help. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We come before you, Lord. We, we worship you, Father. Do you see yourself as a dual citizen? Belonging to God, you are 100% with the Lord, belonging to him, but you also are a member of the world here, right? The communities here. Or do you see yourself as only one? detriment of the other. And don't get me wrong, because of your citizenship in God's city, sometimes you're going to lose your citizenship here, meaning like you might lose your job. Some believers even lose their lives. So yes, all of that is true. All of that is a part of God's redemptive work. But usually though, day in and day out, that's not the case, right? So 
Do you have a clear vision of that like Daniel did? Do you, do you clearly understand that? Do you see it? Do you see yourself when you go into work or school on Monday morning? Do you see yourself like that or no? Are you just like, oh, I don't know. I got to just survive. Or no, I'm just going to go wherever the, the first pressure point is. I'm just going to go in that direction. Whoever invites me to something, I'm there. Or they tell me to do something, I'm there. Brothers and sisters, we got to be thinking. Constantly reform, right? Reform. Reform our thinking. So thank you, Lord Jesus. Okay, I'm done. But let's just come before him. And let's ask God to help us to do that. And we'll take communion. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father God. We're going to take communion soon, but I want to encourage all of you. The Bible says before taking communion, we should evaluate ourselves. And if there is any sin within us, we should confess them before the Lord. So let's do that. Because if we don't, then we may be eating and drinking judgment upon ourselves. Okay, what that means is how can you be taking communion, which is professing faith in Christ, saying, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you died for me. Your body and your blood shed for me. How can you be saying that and at the very same time be in rebellion to Christ? Okay, that's to bring judgment upon yourself. And so the Bible says don't do that. So let's just come before the Lord and let's confess our sins. Let's ask him to cleanse us. And if you're not able to do that today, then you don't have to take communion. It's purely voluntary. If you're not right with God and you can't, see yourself becoming right with him today, then don't, don't take communion. I encourage you not to. But if you're ready to take communion, let's come before him. Let's confess our sins. And then we will take communion. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, we just come before you, Lord, and we thank you for this day. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, you are so good to us. We thank you that you saved us. You gave your Son who died for us and rose again. And we truly belong to you now. We are citizens of heaven, citizens of your city. And that is more precious than anything in this world. 
and yet in your sovereign wisdom, you kept us here. You could have teleported us to heaven. The moment we got saved, we could have been zapped up to your throne room, and yet we weren't. We are still here. Because you have a work for us to do. And not only are we here, but we truly belong here in meaningful ways, Lord. We truly do belong to our workplace, to our schools. We truly belong to the communities that we're a part of. We're not just faking it. We're not just imposters pretending. But we truly do live here. This is our home in many ways. So Lord God, help us then to also be a light, to live out the gospel right here, knowing that we also are citizens here. So help us, God. Help us, God. Help us to to walk that fine line for your glory. So Lord God, thank you so much for this day and, and be with us now as we take communion. Cleanse us, God. Forgive us. Wash us by your blood. You make us white as snow. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's take communion, but if you can take this tab and pull it back, you'll see the cracker. says in scripture for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me let's take this together Let's take the bottom tab and pull it back. You'll see the juice. It says, in the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. Praise God. Let's just come before God one final time and and pray, thanking Him, praising Him for everything He's done. You can even thank Him for the work He's given you to do, whether it's at home, whether it's out in the community. You can thank Him for the school He's placed you in. These are not accidents. It wasn't your will, your choice that took you there. God could have shut that door in your face so fast, it would have made your head spin. But the very fact that he left that door open, that he led you through it, means you're there because God put you there. So let's just give God the thanks, let's give him the glory, and let's just ask him one final time to help us to live out the gospel right there, right where he's placed us. Let's pray. Let's pray.